I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I have no idea where my conversation with today's guest is going to go. Jason Silva is a futurist, a world-renowned TV personality, an internet influencer, a filmmaker, and a keynote speaker who covers topics that vary from the future of artificial intelligence all the way to the tiniest details of who we are inside. I consider him an artist, a poet, really, uh, one that is able to convey thought-provoking wisdom submerged in beautiful metaphors. I personally became a dedicated fan of Jason's work when he hosted five seasons of the Emmy-nominated and global hit TV series, Brain Games. This was emotional for me because it was recommended to me by my beloved son, Nali. Brain Games was broadcasted on the National Geographic channel in 171 countries. Jason then moved on to create a flood of content that inspires us. And although I don't always agree with his views, I find them fascinating, and so I follow all of his work. His series of inspirational videos, Shots of Awe, have received more than 100 million views on the internet. In them, Jason explores topics such as technology, creativity, the future, the science of awe, disruptive innovation, relationships, and mental health. Most recently, he hosted the global mini-series Origins, The Journey of Humankind on the National Geographic Channel. I will now scream like a groupie because I'm about to chat with my favorite rock star. Oh, there you are. That's the one I know. How are you? I'm well. How are you? So good to have you here. It's really wonderful. I've been waiting for this one for a while. Thank you. You're in Amsterdam. That's amazing. Have you always been in Amsterdam? No, I just, uh, it's a city that I adore. It's my favorite city. Yeah. Oh, you too? Oh yeah, I got incredibly successful in the Netherlands for, I don't know why, honestly. Oh, with your book? Yeah, it was definitely my, I mean, in proportion, it was my bestseller anywhere in the world. I think the Dutch like logic, but they're also quite human inside. They don't show it very much because they're super direct. And I felt such a welcome in the Netherlands. They're highly educated people and they're very open-minded. And you're right, they say what they think, but that directness and that bluntness is sometimes misinterpreted by people as thinking that they're somehow like, that they don't have like a rich interior life or that they're not open. They do very much. They love my content. I have a lot of fans in the Netherlands, <laughs> but um, yeah, I've been coming here for years, multiple times a year. I don't live here, but in a way it's like an adopted home. I, I come a lot and I'll stay for a month or two and I enjoy the free. Do you? Cycling. I love how free. Oh, I love it. Yeah. There's nothing like it in the world, I mean, except maybe Copenhagen, but... um. No, but there is something special, even in the Netherlands, as compared to Copenhagen. I think the Netherlands is a bit more 
international. There is much more, everyone is there. And I think freedom is very much at the core of how their value system, and that makes it quite a different place, actually. It's like, you know what? You have the right to do anything you want. I will tell you directly what I think, but don't bother. It doesn't matter what I told you, right? (laughs) Don't take it seriously because I will expect you to tell me what you think and I won't care what you tell me, right? (laughs) It's such an interesting way. As long as I'm free to do what I want, I'm okay with you doing what you want. Yeah. Yeah. that, That is the attitude. And I come here, actually, I find it to be one of the cities that I'm most prolific in my creative. I do so much videos when I'm here and it's probably because you can just feel the living quality and I can appropriate so many areas of the city and turn it into a backdrop for my content because the public spaces, the commons are so people live in the common. Yeah. I feel like in the U S wherever you're going anywhere, you're going somewhere that you have to consume in. It's a private place, but here it's like whether you're sitting on a sidewalk or hanging over the canals or go anywhere, go the, the commons, you just feel it as a place that you can like appropriate. To me, the whole city feels like a park. It's <laughs> very true, actually. I considered living there for a while, actually. You know, I've been a nomad for such a long time. It's painful. This is kind of my reality. Is it? It's just there is always something different to be inspired by in a different place. And no one place offers all of them. And you're like, if you're true to your passion, if you're true to your mission, you can't just settle for the comfort of being in one place, which is wonderful. It's like, I miss it. But at the same time, it's actually quite complex because you don't get everything. So you have that way of making me love what you're saying, even though sometimes I disagree. I don't know why. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm not sure I agree, but he said it so well, like, I like it. (laughs) That's exactly how it is. Yeah, perhaps that's because of the exuberance. And I try to convey things that I'm passionate about without being self-righteous, which I think is very important. Yeah. Because I think if you're militant or if you're self-righteous, it actually, I think, can corrupt the integrity of your message because you start sounding like a cult leader. So in a way, I guess it's the reason why I prefer to think of myself as a artist more than like a motivational speaker or a life hacker or anything like that because I personally want to take poetic license in what I share. I want to bend and stretch and opine and say, you know, this is what speaks to me or this is how I'm resonating with something. That is so interesting. Well, actually, when you say it that way, it actually feels that way as well. That's so spot on. You're basically saying, look, this is how I comprehend not only think, this is how I feel about something, this is my passion, your passion shows, right? And then I don't have to be right, it's just how I feel, right? That's really interesting. I never saw it this way. It takes courage though, doesn't it? I mean, I think what I do is similar to what uh, maybe like a professor of literature would address his students and he would have them read a passage from a novel and then he would say to the students, what do you think this means? And, you know, the student might be nervous because he's afraid that there's a right or wrong answer. He's going to get a bad grade. Amazing. The thing I will tell you, though, Jason, is I've waited for us to have this conversation for a while. And I have to tell you, I have no idea what I want to talk to you about because of the opposite of scarcity, because you talk about so many topics. I know. 
So I'm like, okay, what do I want to, do I want to talk to him about AI? No, no. Do I want to talk about psychedelics? Do I want to talk about, I don't know, really. And the note you sent to Munir, my producer today, was actually quite helpful because I'd like to talk about awe. I actually really, really, I think you see it so differently. It's almost like every time I watch you, it's an invitation to jump into life. And that to me is quite rare, if you ask me, because we somehow are, even my work is to tell people, hey, hey, you're in charge. Take your happiness seriously. There are certain things you have to think about. You're saying, live, just go, right? Just explore, just be inspired, find awe. That's an interesting message. Why? Where does that come from? Yeah, well, there was a, I called my videos shots of awe. Appropriate, I would say. <laughs> yeah, like an espresso shot of awe. <laughs> because it seemed like the broadest, most wide casting definition for like what I'm all about. As you said, my videos are about so many things. Like what's Jason's deal? Is he a futurist talking about like AI and biotech and the singularity? Or is he like into psychedelics and altered states of consciousness because he's always talking about like cannabis or MDMA and their use, their ways of healing trauma and whatnot? Or is he interested in like relationships and romantic love or the human condition or all these things? And the truth is through the lens of awe, Everything is sort of miraculous, right? So if you are engaging with the world with heightened qualitative intensity, then everything sparkles with effervescence. Everything is charged with meaningfulness. Everything is salient. And this kind of perceptual experience, the one that charges the world with meaningfulness, is all mediated by biochemistry. I know it's like dopamine and, and anamide. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I'm such a fan of Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel and their whole book, Stealing Fire, and because they turned me on into understanding flow cycles and the neurochemistry of heightened qualitative intensity. So for somebody that wants to enter awe, to see the world through the lens of awe as often as possible. I'm often frustrated by flow cycles and by the fact that I have to work with my neurochemistry. <laughs> okay, yeah. Rest cycles and recovery cycles. I was once told that I was a cognitive ecstasy addict. <laughs> yeah, I can see that actually. In other words, I like the high of when things connect. I know, I am too. It's like that moment when you go like, oh, that's the best moment on earth, right? Correct. But that's neurochemically taxing. My friend Jeff Brown, who wrote a book called Grounded Spirituality, he calls me peak experience man. And it's essentially because the exuberance and the aliveness that comes with deeply engaging with the world offers not just a kind of ecstasy, right? But it also offers a relief from the nagging chatter of neurosis. Of anxiety. So for me, it's not just uh, the experience is one that, that has two functions. You know, it's the space that engenders all my creativity. It's the space from which I get nourishment and joy, but it's also an antidote to other aspects of the human experience, those characterized by anxiety and boredom even. And so the definition of awe seemed like an all-encompassing thing. Like it was broad enough to account for the lens 
that made everything interesting to me. The reason I was interested in technology and altered states and the human condition and, and the romantic love and cinema and all these things was because many of those subjects, many of those things, when seen through the lens of awe, were awe-inspiring. And so the studies out of Stanford and Berkeley described awe as an experience of such perceptual expansion or such perceptual vastness that your mental models of the world are forced into a state of accommodation, obliteration and then accommodation. Now, what does this mean? As you grow from child to adult, the child is always in awe. That's because he's got no real mental models of the world. He's got no maps. So yeah. everything is new terrain. Everything is new territory. The child is always a nomad, right? And as you become an adult, you start to create these maps and these shortcuts and these shorthands, and you start to tile the world with language and tile the world with concept and tile the world with abstraction. And before you know it, the adult, as Michael Pollan describes it, has this mindset of the been there's and seen that's of the adult mind. Yes. Everything has been mapped out. Everything is now, you don't really have to engage with the world richly anymore because you can just leapfrog to the conclusion. Interesting. Innate jadedness of hedonic adaptation. Innate jadedness of like familiarity that then turns into boredom, right? It's like, I've been to that place a thousand times, so eh, it's not so interesting anymore, you know? Even the most glorious canal in Amsterdam, after a thousand walks on it, you might not notice how awe-inspiring and beautiful it is. So interesting. And that's why we start to leave the present moment and we start to live Yeah, you live elsewhere. in the abstraction. You live in the abstraction, right? And by the way, there's a reason for this because it saves energy. It's less taxing to rely on your maps than to be engaging with the world afreshly. In fact, if you were engaging with the world afreshly all the time in every dimension of it, you'd be overwhelmed. So the words of Michael Pollan are, what is banality and boredom except techniques that the educated mind deploys against experience so that it can get through the day without being continually exhaustingly astonished. <laughs> that is so cool when you think of it this way. It's like, you know what? I don't want to invest effort in discovering the world. I just want to live in what I believe the world is. Sure, exactly, right. But the problem with that is that even though that's efficient, it's efficient like a codec is efficient. Like it gets the message across for the most part, but it also dilutes the intensity of the lived experience of your day-to-day -day life because you're, you're in your maps. And so what is it about experiences of awe is that they are sufficiently intense, but to be forced into a state outside your maps. So an experience of awe hurls you into, you're off the reservation. You're in the territory beyond your maps. And that can be the first time you see the Grand Canyon. It can be skydiving off a plane. It can be going to a safari in South Africa and seeing the big five animals for the first time, you know, in a five in the afternoon golden hour moment and experiencing a mythopoetic archetypal encounter with the sublime. I mean, all these things, what do they do? They stretch your mental models of the world simply because there's something you're not familiar with. And then they force you into a state of accommodation where you now have to make room for this new thing in your worldview. And that whole experience of awe feels great, but then it leaves all this cognitive afterglow. Feelings of increased well-being, increased compassion, increased creativity all follow moments of awe. But again, our default is not one perpetual awe. 
Number one, it's exhausting. Number two, you can't file your taxes or meet your responsibility. So if you're interested or if you realize that at least having regular trips to the wishing well, like regular access to awe, again, not all the time, even the professional <laughs> surfer is not yeah. on the waves, in the flow, in the awe of the perfect wave all the time. He still has to get out of the water and feed himself and pay bills and all that. But he knows how to get there. And so one of the things that I have realized then is that there are certain awe triggers that I can design for to passport me to those states, to stargate me into a state of awe. Such as? Well, I would say the best combination is new experiences and cannabis. <laughs> Great. I think my daughter would like to hear you say that. Well, there you go. And Michael Pollan wrote extensively about cannabis's capacity to elicit a virginal noticing of the sensate world in his book, The Botany of Desire. There's a whole chapter on cannabis in there. And other artists and writers that I really respect have talked about this too. So what happens, right? Well, first of all, cannabis puts you in the present. And one of the reasons it does that is by disrupting your capacity to anticipate the next moment. So it blocks that signaling forwards and backwards that takes you out of the present. The part of you that's in the present comparing it with the past and using that to predict the future, that automatic sort of predicting algorithm of the brain, that gets disrupted by cannabis. Yeah. Now, if you get anxious or paranoid in that moment, that's no good. But if you're prepared for it, if that's what you're looking for, then that creates what he calls a sense of first sight unencumbered by knowingness. Hmm. Knowingness is an encumbrance. Right? If you've been there and seen that of so the adult mind is an encumbrance to seeing something with virginal eyes. So only by forgetting can you see something again for the first time. And cannabis facilitates that simply by blocking those signals forwards and backwards. It's the same reason why listening to music when you're high feels so good because you can't anticipate the next note. So you're listening to it note to note. So if you want to stack the effects of that, of that increased noticing, that increased salience that cannabis can awaken, and then you combine it with an actual new experience, well, then you're stacking it exponentially. So you can go on safari in South Africa. It'll probably give you some awe with no substances. But if you combine that safari in South Africa for the first time with cannabis, well, then you're like, you know, Monet, when he said, in order to <laughs> see something, you have to forget the name of the thing you are seeing. Then when you encounter the animals, you're experiencing and perceiving them before there's a space, right? There's an increased salience between your perceiving of the animal and you saying, that's an elephant, or that's a giraffe, or that's a rhino. There's a moment of just perception before it's tiled with language. And that is charged with awe. Mm. And then, of course, depending on your temperament or your personality, I'm a storyteller. So I have that moment, that stillness, that radiance, that just effervescence of encountering the awe, of encountering the world before I tile it with language. And then it's so glorious that I have to marshal a response. So when language comes back online to try to describe the experience, well, it's an exalted language. It's like what Aldous Huxley wrote in Doors of Perception. I was no longer looking at an unusual flower arrangement. Instead, I was seeing what Adam had seen on the morning of his creation, the miracle moment by moment of naked existence. That's all. That is so beautiful the way you describe it. I have to say, though, you have the absolute right to say this because you turn that into impact in life. 
I'm just breathless by what you said. So don't get me wrong. But I think some people would misunderstand this into escapism. Because that mixture of awe and cannabis is really the escape for a lot of people in the world who don't want to engage anymore. So they're entertaining themselves. And awe could be as little as a binge watch on Netflix while you're smoking weed, right? Well, but the right film on Netflix, whether you're smoking weed or not. I totally agree. I think my question is, there is that one element of it, which is the experience, and there is the intention behind that experience, which is, I'm not trying to escape life here. I'm intensifying my experience of life. That's very different from an intentional point of view. For sure. Well, I would say, and this is where paradoxicality plays a role here. I think it's both. I think on one level, it absolutely I'm trying to escape. What am I trying to escape from? Well, I'm trying to escape from the anguish and agony of ephemerality. I'm escaping from the anguish and agony of the human condition, our finitude, our mortality, the fact that those that I love will age and die, the fact that millions of people in the world are suffering, the fact that illness could strike at any moment. I mean, the despair and the dread of our awareness that things end, that people die, that suffering exists. There is definitely a desire to steward the contents of my mind away from that because I can easily dwell on that. Like I could sit here and feel depressed for days about COVID. And so there is an escapism, right? But a more romantic way of describing it is suspension of disbelief. So what happens when you watch a film? Some people say when you watch a film, you're escaping from your reality. But really when you watch a film, what you're doing is you're suspending your disbelief at the reality of that film. Because that film is just as real as your day-to-day -day reality. Once you assume the viewpoint of a character on the screen, well, for all purposes, in a mythopoetic level, you assume you become that character. You enter some archetypal realm, as Carl Jung would say, where, where the reality of that character's experience is transforming you and affecting you and, and evoking landscapes in your mind that are powerful and transformative. And so, but the hardest part of watching a film is that hiccup where you're like watching actors act and then finally suspending disbelief and believing in the reality of that film. So what does cannabis do? It increases reactivity and receptivity to stimuli both from within and from without. So essentially, it makes you more hypnotizable. It makes you more suggestible to what's happening now rather than the abstractions and all the existential dread that accompany those abstractions that are both our gift and our curse. So if I'm in exquisitely splendid, stunning natural environment, I might still be thinking about the anxiety of COVID. So I need something to push me over the edge into the radiance of the now. I need something that heightens my noticing. And for some people, it might be meditation. We're really just talking about the hinge of attention. Charles Darwin, he wrote that attention, if sudden and close, graduates into surprise, and this into astonishment, and this into stupefied amazement, which is essentially awe. But that requires a capacity to pay attention. And I, I think that some people are just more hypnotizable than others, and some people need some kind of lubricant. So I would say, for me, the cannabis is just a lubricant. It allows me to slipstring into that heightened noticing. 
But again, in combination with novelty, in combination with an environment that demands me to pay attention to it. So I said, I can talk to you about a million and a half things. (laughs) And I intend to, okay? (laughs) We're going to talk until you tell me to stop. Because I want to go in two directions at the same time here. One direction is I want to go back to attention and the idea of attention, the idea of the present moment. I think that's a wonderful notion if you're deliberately trying to be there. But I want to first push it further beyond cannabis into other psychedelics. So how often do you get someone that says... I had an ayahuasca trip that completely redefined my life. Is that more of the same? Is that, again, a very strong anchor into that present moment, removing the filters to give you an experience of life that is different than what we see when we're so occupied by what our brains tell us? Yes. I mean, my interpretation, my understanding, at least of the classic psychedelics, is that they actually strip away your entire self including all those abstractions and all those ideas. I mean, you might have to like first encounter yourself and then die to yourself and and go through a series of cascading realizations and death and resurrection processes in your psyche. But ultimately, you might enter this experience of the now that is eternal, one in which you realize that the self is an illusion or an elaborate construct and that all that matters is what's happening now. And because the world is so charged and so miraculous and so, I guess, like sparkling with divinity in those psychedelic states, that the afterglow of that experience for many people is enough to have months or years of transformation where anxiety doesn't come back. It's like the shaking the snow globe metaphor is what some of these psychedelic researchers are referring to. it. So our, our rigid thought patterns, uh, the obsessive thinking, the, the OCD, like that whole construct in the mind is just shaking so intensely that it gets to get rebuilt. So interesting. But the thing is, that might be sort of a one-off experience that is enough for most people. Nobody, much less me, would ever say that ayahuasca can be like integrated to be used like once a week or to be taken with you every time on vacation somewhere cool. But the difference being is that I think from the perspective of creative people, I think cannabis is the only psychedelic that has been integrated into the creative process from like jazz musicians to freestyle rappers to painters. And for me, at least with that, instead of doing a psychedelic once a year, cannabis has been integrated into my lifestyle (laughs) in the perpetual pursuit of our experiences. Amazing. Amazing how you talk about it as well. I'm sure you expected that Jason and I will talk for more than one episode. Part two, I promise you, is even more intriguing. But before you leave, let me remind you. Slow-mo is part of my mission to make a billion people find uninterrupted happiness by seeing the world differently. You can help this mission by taking a few simple actions. Spread the word. Tell those who you love about slow-mo. Teach them what you learn and encourage them to search for their own happiness. Post about us on social media and please rate this podcast positively on your podcast player, especially if you're using Apple Podcasts. This is a very simple action, but you have no idea how many hundreds or even thousands of people just those few clicks from your side will help me reach. Join me and Jason again on Thursday. Until then, stay happy. 
And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, SlowMo, Solve for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.